we actually have more in common than different. And so acknowledging those differences and celebrating those differences, but then figuring out like, okay, but how can we work together on what we do share? And then share what our different perspectives give us for mutual healing. Every single one of us has a body. People are complex and our bodies are no different. They might look the same, but on the inside, totally different from person to person. Some of us feel at home in our bodies while others of us do not. And not really always because of gender. There are many reasons that people disconnect with their bodies. Emotions can be tough to handle for sure. Trauma makes for a challenging life with our bodies because the body keeps the ultimate score. And that's true even if you aren't already facing a disability, a disease, or some other condition that places more strain on your relationship with your body. For many trans people, their transness is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what makes them and their bodies so different. You're listening to Camp Wildheart, your guide for raising a transgender child and nurturing an affirming family. I'm your host slash head counselor, Mackenzie Dunham, but you can call me Mac. Before we jump into this episode, as I've been doing all season long, I'm going to make these same announcements. Number one, if you are new here, if this is your first time or if you have been listening for a while but you haven't gone back to the beginning, pause. Go back to the beginning. Listen from episode one, season one. I promise it makes a difference. The first season is full of stories from parents who are just like you and it really helps reduce that feeling of isolation and I'm the only one. Number two, we are actively working on building a community for you. We have a Facebook group and a Discord. Uh, the Facebook group is called the Camp Wild Heart Community and it's totally private. Uh, the Discord server is also private, but it requires access. So you have to actually email in order to get on it. Um, so the email is camp at wildheartsociety.org and then we'll send you the link. But that way we can make sure that it's really actually parents of trans kids that are joining and not hurtful people. And third, we're going to have a real life Camp Wildheart experience this summer. I'm so excited. We will be at Sequest State Park in Washington State. Um, we've got a camp loop booked out. We've got the group camping. We've got the day camping or the day picnic area. We've got our staff is so jazzed about it. And it's going to be unreal. Come join us. Unleash your wild heart. Find your thriving community. Meet other families and experience the magic of summer camp. For more information on it, you can go to wildheartsociety.org slash events slash camp. Okay. Today, we're diving into the crucial topic that affects the health and well-being of transgender individuals. It's no secret that members of the LGBTQ community face unique health challenges, but we should be clear that we have no definitive data or empirical research that any of the unique health conditions are caused by transness, nor do they cause transness. These are simply conditions that are commonly seen in the same patients. So just because you have a trans kid, that does not mean this is going to be their future. It's just something I see a lot of. And so I thought I would find someone to help us talk about it. Our guest today is Dr. Sam Zoranovich. Uh, Dr. Sam is a chiropractor who specializes in providing care to the LGBTQ plus and BIPOC communities. Dr. Zoranovich has extensive experience working with trans patients 
and will be sharing their insights on the co-occurring conditions that are commonly seen in the trans community. Sam was diagnosed with multi-epiphyseal dysplasia um, when they were 12. That's a genetic defect in the growth of their long bones. So they underwent a lot of corrective surgeries and experienced a lot of pain all before they were seven. And because of the surgeries, they can walk relatively normal and painlessly now, but they spend a lot of their childhood and youth feeling broken. They were fat because they couldn't exercise on crutches for a year in the eighth grade and obviously gay during a time when that was not really an okay thing to be. They felt they didn't belong anywhere, least of all in their body, which they felt had totally betrayed them. They spent years learning to overcome the physical limitations that the condition and the surgeries created, as well as learning to rewrite the story of their own body. They went from broken to whole. Side note, to heal comes from an old word that literally means to make whole. They went from broken to whole and from self-loathing to in love with their body and their life. They use everything they've learned from their own healing and everything they've learned from their own patients to help people go from managing symptoms and dealing with it to loving their lives and thriving. They take particular delight in working with special bodies. So those who have a history of surgery, early injury, or genetic variation. They also particularly love working with people who feel like their body has betrayed them or that they've never fit in, or it's just gone awry. They've been passionate about serving the LGBTQ plus communities since they began working in health and wellness. And they've actively welcomed trans and queer people and their allies to join their practice in full confidence of being a part of affirming celebratory community. I first came across Sam on TikTok. You can find them on TikTok as at Dr. Sam Z, all one word. They shared a video discussing the link between neurodivergence and transness or queerness. And it's this is something you've heard me talk about before and something you're going to hear me talk about again today and probably in the future. So I commented on the video. I said, I work with trans kids as a therapist, and I'm yet to meet one that isn't neurodivergent in some way or another. My comment rang true for so many other clinicians who were also on TikTok, and it sort of like blew up a little bit. And I had more likes on my comment than I've ever had on anything in social media before. Um, and then Sam actually replied directly to my comment by making another video. The video that they shared shared more information and more details about trans bodies and also the link between marginalized identities in general and how they actually shape the way we carry ourselves and respond to certain situations, like our actual body posture. It was a true jaw-dropping moment for me, and I instantly fired off an email to him asking them to be on the podcast. We do nerd out a little bit on TikTok and how great it is. Sorry. Um, no, not sorry. I like TikTok. I'm okay with it. Just like any other kind of media, it's full of great information as well as a bunch of crap. So you just have to sort through and apply your media awareness skills and figure out if that sounds true. Maybe I should verify that someplace else. Anyway, enjoy. I used to work in peds in like the medical universe mm -hmm. um, as a social worker. And I remember a big part of my job as a pediatric social worker was translating between behavioral health and uh, 
the doctors. And um, I didn't realize that was my job when I first started. Um, but like over over listening to their meetings and like hearing what was being discussed in the meetings that I was in that were like behavioral health focused, I was like, we're talking about the same things, but we're using completely different language. Yeah. And we don't know what each other is saying. How much is happening where like, you're seeing the same issue that I'm seeing, we treat it differently, we don't know how to approach it, we try and communicate about it, but we're using different words that mean different things in our universes. One of the major challenges in treating complicated conditions like the ones that we're talking about or, or dealing with complicated people, right, who have identities that are non-standard, shall we say, but also have bodies that are non-standard and also have other things besides just how they perceive themselves and present themselves to the world uh, that are non-standard, uh, that happen in their brains, right? And, and one of the things that's really challenging about that is that medicine is designed to specialize and compartmentalize. I'm speaking as an outsider to medicine. I've never worked in medicine per se. I, I'm a chiropractor. And as a chiropractor, one of our... So here's our conceit in chiropractic. And you can disagree with the way I frame it, but I think it'll get a, a good place to start. In our conceit of ourselves, chiropractic understands medicine to be focused on symptoms and what make, makes people sick and ill. And chiropractic is trying to focus on life and what makes people well. In medicine, you're a specialist in this domain but that doesn't necessarily give you an understanding of what's happening in this other domain. And it really de-emphasizes the ability to connect dots, which is a subtly different thing, right? So the, the challenge then that we run into is how do we, as practitioners who have our hands on or our minds on our clients, um, working with a population and observing these patterns how do we connect the dots in a useful way so that the patients get the care that they need without seeing a dozen practitioners every week? That's a real struggle. And I, I don't have the answer to that. I have some ideas about where to begin thinking about it. Yeah, it's a great jumping off point because one of the things that happens a lot, right? If I can just talk about any of the kids really that I work with, right? We've got um, usually an some sort of neurodivergence diagnosis that I didn't give them because I can't give a neurodivergence diagnosis um, in the state of Washington. I can diagnose ADHD, but I can't diagnose autism. I can spot it a mile away. <laughs> we smell our own. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, I was like, it's everywhere. Um, so I can spot it a mile away and get people to the people who can give them diagnosis if that's important to them. But there's like, the autism people, there's the occupational therapy people, there's the developmental pediatrician, there's the chiropractor, there's the GI doctor, right? Yeah. Like even dermatologists, because all of that patterns together. Yeah. yeah. All of it does. Yeah. It's and so then you've got kids and families just running around trying to get to all these different appointments and nobody's really talking to each other either. Right. Right. Which is tricky and which which makes the conversation that you and I are having right now particularly gratifying for me because I a thing that I've observed in my in my career is that as a chiropractor, I have a lot in common with psychotherapists about how I'm thinking about my work and what we're doing with our work. You're trying to change how the brain is processing the world, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. that they can experience something different than their habitual mind has led them to experience. I'm trying to change how their brain is processing their body which affects how they move through the world so that they can have 
an experience of their body and its relationship to the world that is different than what their habit habitual has led them to. So like we're doing the same thing. You're using words, presence, awareness, imagery. I'm using hands, movement, sensation, imagery in order to help the brain build new neural pathways that are easier to live with. I have um, a body worker that I work with really regularly and have for a long time. And I've told him over and over again, I'm like, you have helped me more with my PTSD than anybody else ever had. PTSD is not a mental thing. It's not, it's not something in your story. It's not something in the story that you're telling yourself, except insofar as like when you're telling yourself stories that re-traumatize you, um, right. <laughs> right? which your therapist can totally help with that piece. But they can't help with the fact that your brain is literally frozen in a defense response waiting to go off and holding your body ready to fight. Whereas a massage therapist or various other kinds of body workers and certainly chiropractors can help your body change its conformation. And then your brain has to say, well, I guess I, I'm not trapped in self-defense forever because I'm currently not in it and I'm not dying. Therefore, it must be safe to feel safe. I remember going through it myself and being like, this is incredible. And I had to do like a lot of therapy, like psychotherapy first, right? So I had the skills going in. And I, in fairness, like he's a very trauma-informed um, massage therapist, but he didn't know that that's what we were doing when we were doing it. Um, and I later told him. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's cool about the body is that you don't always have to know what the content is in as a practitioner in order to work with it. In fact, when I started my career, I was really invested in understanding what the content was so that I could like relate to it in some particular way. Um, and that's intensely distracting for me. Like, if you need to tell me about what you're feeling, I'm a healer. I'll hold space for you. You can talk about that. I, it's not, and it's not that I'm not going to listen, but I am going to a little bit kind of like, uh huh. Okay, good. Yeah, keep going. Okay, good. You have all that out. Okay, good. Now let's get to work on it. Right. Like I don't I don't want the content. I don't want those details. That's not for me. All I need to do is figure out what where your body is reacting to that still and help it stop reacting. I've talked a lot in the podcast at various points just about like the early childhood trauma connection to like how the way your body holds things, body keeps the score, the body holds all to your trauma, you know, you gotta process it and work it out of your body in order for it to like really release. Um, but when your response to my TikTok comment. Like it gave me the biggest gut punch. Like I felt it physically in my body when you did that um, pelvic movement backwards, that body movement of, oh, I don't belong here. Um, I, when, when you did it, I was like, oh my God, I know that movement. I know it intimately. I've done it. I've seen it. I've seen it so many different times in so many different places. I know so many other people that do it. And then thinking about how it like, like my brain just was like, oh my God, it's, it's rough. Like uh, how that just that positioning, um, having done so much body work myself, right? Like I know having positioning my my hips in that way throws off the entirety of like everything else about my body. When your hips are out, it's a headache waiting to happen. It just really messes. Like when my hips are out, I like I can barely function. I, I'm going to – so I don't really know you very well, Mackenzie, and we've not talked about this at all, but I'm going to make some wild-ass guesses. Um, probably uh, – Hormonal changes around your cycle get all messed up and your digestive system falls to pieces and you get really bad breakouts or your skin does something really wild. Yeah, all those things are correct. So I didn't know that because I'm psychic. I am a little bit <laughs> Only a little bit, right? I didn't know that because I'm psychic. I knew that because those things constellate together. And I think that's sort of the, the 
I got the impression that that was at least a big part of why you wanted to have this conversation was to talk about how these how these different pieces overlap and form constellations. Um, and the one of the big patterns for sure that I think we've already touched on um, is about you know neurodiversity and what I'm what I'm starting to refer to as anatomodiversity. Ooh. Um, so if I have a TikTok about this, you may have seen it. I don't know how closely you follow me, but um, if your brain works different than average, right? Which is what we mean when we say neurodiversity, or at least that's a thing we could mean, and we'll, let's go with that for now, right? Um, if your brain works differently than average, processing the world. Well, your bodily sensations are part of the world. In fact, they're the most intimate part of the world that your brain is processing. 70% of all the activity in your brain at any given time, according to fMRI studies, has to do with the action of joints and their relationship to gravity. 70% of what your brain is doing is joint and gravity. So if you have this notion that like your mind is the main thing, like, hmm, <laughs> you know, I don't think that's it, right? So if that's true and your brain works different than average, how could your body not work different than average? You're processing information from your body different from average. And so what I see really, really commonly is um, with both ADHD and uh, autism spectrum disorder, Digestive system issues are primary symptoms. There are people who don't have them, who, who do have either of those diagnoses or maybe could get those diagnoses but choose not to. Um, but that is such a common symptom that it's really important to tune in on. And particularly with – so we, we all sort of know about autism spectrum uh, being really highly correlated with sensory integration issues. With ADHD, it's often a tight muscle, loose ligament thing that happens. And according, again, to this book that I mentioned before we started recording called Disjointed, and I can, I'll give you links so that you can put that up in there too for your audience. I will put it in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. That I think there's a fairly high correlation of, um, certainly what I've learned from my, my people on TikTok is that there's a high correlation between neurodiversity and hypermobility spectrum disorders where there's a loose connective tissue issue that your joints are constantly a little more mobile than average, and so your muscles get tight. And this is really common with, with ADHD, um, that the muscles are tight. When patients come in and tell me they have ADHD, my first question is usually, oh, are you uh, sprained your ankles all the time as a kid, ADHD, still do, digestive system issues, ADHD, or mis mystery bruises all over your body, ADHD? Which pick as many as apply. Right. And they are usually surprised because, and this goes back to what we were saying before about the, the lack of intercommunication and interconnectivity of disciplines. Um, nobody ever told them that their ADHD had physical correlates, that there were, there were going to be physical symptoms that are likelier precisely because they have this ADHD diagnosis. It's so wild to me how much we don't, we as like practitioners, providers, society, humans, uh, don't know about neurodiversity, neurodiversity and neurodivergence, right? It's so, like, we barely know anything. And if you think about like all attention disorders, well, that's what I'll, like the DSM classifies them as the attention disorders, all get filtered into ADHD. There is not another attention disorder. It's the only one. And so either it's, you have ADHD or they'll deny, like a lot of doctors will say, no, you don't have ADHD, you just have anxiety, right? Like, but they don't really explore or dive into either one of them. And they just say, here's, here's this pill, go take it, right? Um, or go, go back to therapy. And the therapist is like me going, it's ADHD. Even if there, it's more 
nuanced than that. That's the only tool you're given to, or the only category you're given to put them into. I want to speak, like, I can only speak for myself as a practitioner and for the people who are, who uh, do work similar to me. And we're, we're a small but growing number of people who are trying to be both trauma-informed um, as well as, like, chiropractic is well set up to do, to do trauma. It's a small and growing number of us who are really in this field. And neurodiversity and our conversation about neurodiversity, let me own up in our profession that we have not done a great job historically. Um, but we're in a good position to do it now. Historically, when I was in school, the conversation about ADHD in school was, oh, we can fix that. Which, like, no, we really literally cannot. But you know what we can do? We can often, by turning down a heightened uh, sympathetic tone in the nervous system, give them a little more space around it. That actually, we can sometimes make management easier, especially if part of your ADHD symptoms are a combination of you have ADHD and you have developmental trauma because you have ADHD and adults and schools failed you. And so if we can resolve your body's response to that trauma, then your ADHD symptoms will be easier to manage. You know, um, So we can do that, but our conversation about it was bad. And our conversation about autism was significantly worse um, when I was in school. It had a lot to do with, oh, it's your mom's fault for vaccinating you, which like we got infiltrated in the 80s. <laughs> Not all of us, but there, you know, it's there, it's there. And so like, um, being able to, I think, elevate that conversation, we're actually like in relationship with other providers like acupuncturists and therapists in particular. I think I'm in a really good position to help people really well manage their stuff so that who they are doesn't get questioned by their by their providers. Like you, yeah, you you do have those things. Those things are a part of how you 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 work, but it doesn't have to be a source of suffering. The idea about it not being a source of suffering, I just it's so beautiful to me. And also I look at how many other systems need to shift and change and understand that in order for that developmental trauma piece, in order for that negative self-talk to like not be a part of the narrative for neurodivergent folks who grow up in a um, I'll speak for America, um, but I'm sure it's not dissimilar in other countries as well. The TikTok that somehow the TikTok algorithms, they know it all right. Um, it led me to the video that you originally posted that was like somebody was saying there's an inherent overlap. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there is. And then there you popped up. Right. Because it was a stitch. And um, all I did was like share my experience. Right. Like I'm a therapist. This has always been the case for me. And then you responded to it. 50,000 views later, um, or something, right, and growing, uh, it's clear that we're not the only people that think this. I, I'm learning so much, and it's been inc incredibly humbling, um, but also very exciting. I'm learning so much from, uh, from TikTok and from the people on TikTok sharing their experiences. I like when I started posting, I was like, okay, so like, let's talk about ADHD. Let's talk about skin conditions. Let's talk about digestive system issues. And there's an overlap there with tight muscles and loose ligaments. And I started getting first little whispers and then like torrents of, hey, do you, do you know about hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos? Do you know about heads? Do you know about this? Do you know about, you really need to know about this? Dude, you need to shut up and learn about this. And I was like, I think I need to shut up and learn about this, which is why I started reading that that book, Disjointed, um, why I've been doing a lot of research. But I think a lot of I think a lot of my job in this space um, has to do with doing one of my favorite things, which is connecting dots for people. 
I first started really learning about the relationship between the body symptoms and ADHD, particularly from my partner, who said that while when he was younger and on Tumblr, it was the first place where he ever got to interact with other people with ADHD, unmediated by the professional in the room coaching the conversation. And so they just got to share, like, I have all these things. Oh, I have all these things too. Wait, you have all these things too? But that's not in my diagnosis. None of that is part of this diagnosis, but we all sprain our ankles all the time and have these digestive system issues. And a lot of us have skin problems and a lot of us have these things. And like, while it's not 100% overlap, there's such a clear pattern. So he started pointing it out to me and I was like, this is interesting. And what it led me to, to do was think, like start to construct a model about just in my own, from my own understanding, without having any read any articles that verify that this is true until very recently, like this sounds like hyperactivation of nervous system stuff. I, I wonder if people with ADHD are just easily stimulated into the, the fight flight nervous system. I bet they're a little easier, especially since both ADHD and trauma affect the prefrontal cortex. There's got to be a relationship there. It's not the same thing, but there has to be a relationship. Well, and it's so interesting. So I list uh, TikTok again, right? Strikes again. Um, I was listening to a TikTok by a um, an ADHD coach um, who I will find the video that he made and send it to you um, because cool. it's so good. Um, and I'll also post it in the show links. But he was explaining, I really feel like I have a pretty good handle on ADHD um, and autism stuff because like... Everyone in my family is neurodivergent, including myself. Like my son has got an autism diagnosis, an ADHD diagnosis. I'm partnered with somebody who's neurodivergent, like every, everybody, right? And then like, I, this is the population I work with. So I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on it. And this guy goes, I want to talk about how ADD and, um, is actually like fits under the ADHD. Cause oftentimes people will say, well, I don't have the H. I'm only ADD. Um, I just have a problem with focus. And, he explained it as it's their brain that is hyper. And so their brain is in this constant state of imagination and dreaminess and like constantly grasping onto different things. And so they do have ADHD. It's just that it's not showing up as yeah, movement the H isn't the movement. It's, yeah. it's, it's the speed of your brain. So what you just said about their hyperactivity reactive to like their nervous system, I'm like, uh, who do we talk to about? Like, this is a thing. Yeah. Neuro neurologically, I think the term for that is uh, facilitated is what that means. It means it's easier to activate the response. Um, and so my observation is that people with ADHD, and this couples really, really neatly with, for instance, rejection sensitive hyper uh, dysphoria, right? But like, oh, it's just easier to put you into the fight or flight response, which if you look at this, if you look at particularly ADHD as a as a survival adaptation on a species-wide level, right? Whether it's passed on epigenetically, whether it's intrinsic to our DNA, I don't know. But like if you look at it as a survival adaptation, some of us with our faces down in the reeds, making baskets, sorting berries into baskets, pulling the roots out of the ground, washing the roots in the ground, and some of us going, hey, do you need help any what was that? Hold on. Did you hear that? Did you see that? I think I saw, I think I saw, I think I heard, I think, like, this is an old story. I'm not making that one up, right? But that to me sounds like facilitated sympathetic response. And so long as we can come back down, it's fine, right? It's when we get stuck, when we get lost up in the rafters in that uh, sympathetic response, which will totally happen when you have developmental trauma layered on top of your neurodiversity or queerness. And I think it's developmental trauma, maybe the axis around which a lot of these things that have so much in common relate that 
you you experience developmental trauma when you are in a developmental phase experiencing trauma and it rewires how your brain works during one of those crucial formative phases. Um, that doesn't mean that you're broken forever. It just means that you adapt to certain kinds of stresses that other people didn't have to adapt to. And the most crucial, like, or not, I don't say crucial, that's sort of the right word, but the, the periods of time in which our brains are most malleable and open to um, environmental change, right, is um, before the age of six and adolescence, right? And certain, like, it's not like we're fixed the entire rest of the time, but that's certainly the time that like the most healing can happen as well as the most damage can happen. Um, and so when we think about that in terms of developmental trauma for, for kiddos with ADHD and autism and like add on to it queerness that they don't understand yet because nobody talks about it before you're six and the shame, like developmentally shame starts showing up around four or five. Um, those shame stories first start, like it's all just right there. This like, bonfire that all you need is somebody who doesn't understand it should just throw in the match. So in my universe, shame first shows up in the pelvis. Ooh, interesting. Which like thinking about, think about tucking your tail. Ooh. Oh. Think about even that, that YouTube that we talked to that you started talking about the first one I did about like, oh, I don't belong here. That wince response is just close kissing cousins with shame, right? I have, I have, I have a YouTube video that I want to send you. It's this brilliant lecture, or at least it's 10 minutes of a three hour long lecture, you know, but, um, uh, broken up into 10 minute segments because it's for parents of ADHD kids and how to think of it. Is it Russell Barkley? I think it is. Yeah. 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 It's like this really yeah, long. I've seen it. I refer to it all the time. Oh my God. It's so good. One of the things that he says in that, that really like jumped out at me, like when you were talking about, uh, when, when you were, when you were speaking a second ago, I even made a little note about it was, um, about, uh, about hyperactivity, right? ADHD is an impulsivity issue. It's impulse control and impulse management. Um, and sometimes that means shit comes out of your mouth before you have a chance to run your filters necessarily, especially in adolescence and childhood, um, which can lead to a lot of social isolation because you're not playing the same social game. And this, so this applies both to people with autism spectrum disorder who are not picking up the social cues the same way or are picking up so many other cues that their systems get overwhelmed. Um, or ADHD, where like the first thing that pops into your mouth to say is already out of your mouth. The first thing that pops in your mouth to, or pops in your mouth hands to do is already happening. And you don't necessarily have a strong why. It's just like what occurred to you to do before you had a chance to stop it from happening. You know, I, so I, I have, I have no diagnoses about neurodiversity. Um, I have very strong suspicions <laughs> about my neurodiversity, right? Um, and, um, a lot of it comes from learning about, first of all, some of these patterns of physical symptoms and behavioral issues. Um, I was, I was, I was very successful in school. I didn't have that. So I would never have gotten dinged for ADHD. Um, and while I was socially awkward, I was totally able to make friends and I, I can totally make eye contact. In fact, I make exactly the wrong kind of eye, eye contact and did up until somebody sat me down and taught me about how I was making the wrong eye contact. Because like I'm disinterested in the social facade that you present. I want to know who you actually are, the truth, not the pretense. So I'm just going to stare at the truth of who you are and not pay much attention to the pretense of who you're trying to convince me you are, which as it turns out makes people terribly uncomfortable. So putting together those dots and then only very recently going like, I couldn't even be in the room when the toilet was flushing when I was a kid because the noise was so overwhelming. 
and I had to change floors when the vacuum cleaner was on. But nobody ever thought. And in fairness, right, like no, nobody ever thought that when we were young, right? Like that, that we didn't think about it that way when we were young. Like talking about it or thinking about it in the way that I've approached things with my son who had, is exact same as what you just described, right? Intense eye contact. Um, and intense movement can't couldn't be still can't handle toilet flushing he's 11 um and still can't handle it can't handle haircuts can't handle um nail trims like can't handle i could not I, yeah i couldn't cut my nails until yep. i was in my and 20s like just, just do was this free-flowing kid for the longest time until like he went to mainstream school and the mainstream school kids like pummeled it out of him um and he was like okay i realize i've been doing this and then he started, it was clear, he started trying to mask. Um, but nobody looked at that yeah. when you were a kid, right? Yeah, well, when I, when I was young, like, what autism meant was profoundly disabled and non-functional. And fortunately, now we're able to talk about it on a spectrum. So we can say, like, here are the pieces. And each of those might be at a different volume knob for you. And each of them might be at a different volume knob every day. But these are the common threats one of my patients told me recently that they used to work at a, a neuroscience research lab looking at the boundaries between diagnosable disorders, specifically bipolar, anxiety, depression, uh, ADHD, uh, and autism spectrum. And the boundaries are so much fuzzier than, again, a medicalized model would want. A medi medicine is super good at you have an infection of this bacterium or this virus causing this set of symptoms, and the treatment involves this. Or you have broken or torn this bone or tissue, and so the treatment and recovery plan is this. But that's not how the mind works. It's not how the brain works. And it's not how global systemic issues like connective tissue disorders or inflammatory disorders or autoimmune disorders work. Um, and so it makes it, now we're back to the top of the conversation. How do we as practitioners who have our fingers on pieces of this and can see larger swaths of it that are often outside of our scopes of practice, right? How do we collaborate to get people the care that they need without having to see a dozen providers a week? And I, I wish I had the answer. I wish I want to, I, I want to tell you, here's my program. It'll do it. But like, I don't, right. I don't know. Yet. I don't have the answer either. My answer right now is burn it to the ground and let's start over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't hate that answer. I don't hate that answer. You know, sometimes I think about like, you know, what we really absolutely need is universal healthcare that's comprehensive and all inclusive and prevent prevention focused. And hmm, I have no idea how I would make money in that model. I'd, I'd be willing, I'd be willing to figure it out. When I was in school, I remember really wrestling with this idea about how, like, this might be hard to market. Like, chiropractic might be hard to market because what I find in my own experience in my body, it's best at doing is getting me out of the pain that I had forgotten that I'm feeling. Yes. I'm so used to this that it doesn't even register as discomfort until it stops. I'm going to guess that your, your son, from what you said, is like me about white noise machines. Um, or the sound of a whirring fan. It just like drives him bananas. Oh, yeah. Can't say it. That's got to go. Yeah. White noise machines, like if they're on for long enough, I sort of tune them out. But in the sense that like as soon as they turn off, I can feel my skin soften. But then I get used to it and I'm acclimated to this sort of new tighter normal until it stops. And, oh, and that's, you know, chiropractic is good for getting people out of pain in other kinds of ways. Um, but I actually don't think that 
pain relief is our best application. Like that's that's not really what we're good for. That's not really what we're at. Um, and except for those of us who specialize exactly in pain management and mediation, like for the most part, what we're really good at is helping tone the nervous system back down to a lower resting state instead of hanging out in the heightened sympathetic tone and integrating signals from the body is what we're here for. Um, and getting ourselves able to feel the noxious stimulus. You know, there's the old sort of old saw, if you can feel it, you can heal it, right? But until you can feel it, like, how are you going to even change it if you don't know where it is? Are you familiar with internal family systems work? Um, only vaguely. Like, I've, I've, I've heard of it. I've, I've done a little bit of um, constellation uh, therapy, which is like a drama therapy application, I think, of similar things. Um, but only done a little bit because that's not really what I do in my practice. Yeah. Right. Internal family systems is essentially like parts work. Like we're all made up of all these parts, right? And then being able to communicate among your parts and have a better understanding of how your parts are leading or are holding on to trauma or are rushing in to save you from bad experiences. And um, I use it a lot. It's like probably the most effective intervention that I have ever found for complex trauma. Um, and so when I'm working with teenagers or adults, the very first piece of, fa of family systems work is identifying the part, feeling the part, where does it live in your body? And like spend, like you can spend like almost the entire session really just trying to flush out where does you, where does this part live in your body? How does it show up for you? How's it experiencing you? How's it experiencing your surroundings? And like really starting to develop relationships with it. And so that way, when it shows back up again, you're like, oh, I know what that is. Okay. I can soothe that part of me and then I can continue moving forward. Right. It's a completely different way of understanding the physical sensations of your body. I think once we're out of, once we as individuals come out of like acute pain or intense, overwhelming pain, um, oftentimes, it's really just about relationship building. I had um, I had a patient today. It was actually the same patient I was mentioning before, who used to work at a neuroscience research lab, um, who was telling me that like they've been doing uh, belly dance recently, um, and we used belly dance as the metaphor for what we're working on in the next phase of care. Then in belly dance, you often start with movement isolations. You're going to learn how to move just the chest, just the hips, just. Uh, one shoulder in a particular way so that each muscle has individuated control of itself so that you can work in isolation. But by working each part in isolation, what you actually do is make all of the parts work together. And then your job as a belly dancer, your job as a dancer, the improvisation is really about orchestrating relationships and introductions. And that's once we're out of suffering, once we're out of like, I'm in so much pain that I can't really function. Okay, now maybe I'm not perfectly comfortable, but I can function and I can do things that I enjoy again. And then it's really about orchestrating relationships and introductions between all of those parts. Whether we're talking about literal physical parts, I want to move my right shoulder and my left hip together and then asynchronously and then together again. Or if we're talking about, I want to move the part of me that protects me from rejection and the part of me that seeks connection. And I want to move them separately and together. 
right? I think it's the same thing. I think it's, I think we're talking about the same thing. I think we are talking about the same thing, right? And that takes me back to like, we're talking about the same things. We're just using all just different languages, right? Like that's what we're all talking about. Even though a big part of what you and I have been talking about today is neurodiversity, our brains are more alike than they are different. No matter how different they are, they're more alike than they are different. Um, and our bodies, likewise, no matter how different your body is, it has more in common with my body and your body than it does different. The basic premises are the same. Um, and so it's really important to be aware of how the differences affect us, whether the differences are compositional in the material structure of our bodies and how they work, our ability disability index, if they're how our cognition is different than average, how how race, class, and culture all intersect and gender all intersect in the ways that we're like it's really important to know about and acknowledge the reality of that stuff. But we actually have more in common than different. And so acknowledging those differences and celebrating those differences, but then figuring out like, okay, but how can we work together on what we do share and then share what our different perspectives give us for mutual healing? And I think that there's something particularly in white culture that makes that very difficult. And that is, well, there's a lot of things really, but like it's, you can't not know. That takes away from people's ability to understand the differences that you experience and the differences that I experience and how we're similar and how we're different and also what strengths we both bring to the table and how we can use that together for the collective healing. I mean, I think it's that last piece about working together for collective healing that is one of the major weaknesses in American white cultural thought, right? Like a thing that I think, let me, let me put this out there. I, I may be projecting something on you, Mackenzie, please correct me if so. A thing I believe that I know that I strongly suspect that you know is that if my neighbors are suffering, I'm not as well as I could be. That I think is, I think we're doing it again. We're using different words to talk about the same thing again. There's one of the major issues. It's like our ability to really find, to seek common ground in that way about like, how can we, how can I stand for your well-being? And there's this fear, right? If I stand for your well-being, then mine, my well-being will suffer. Zero-sum games. Yeah. Right. As opposed to like, I can stand for your well-being, your well-being will rise, mine will rise with it. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, I feel like conversations like this do some of the work, right? They lay the foundation for, um, I am personally very invested in building relationships with therapists and nurses because Y'all are in different parts of the healthcare arena, but ones that I think, as for reasons we already talked about, are very compatible with mine. And so you can come from a, a mind place and they can come from a chemistry and care place and I can come from a body structure and a neurology place and we can find like, oh, the important thing is people. That's it. The important thing is people. I want to tie this up for parents that might be listening to this, right? So maybe they're listening and they've heard us talk about this and like, okay, well, I can see now that like there's things that need to be done for my kid or for my family. Um, and, or the horror of you, what do you mean? Nobody's talking to each other and I'm taking my kid to all these appointments. Um, do you have any pearls of wisdom on how parents can, how they can either try and see the whole picture of their kid or 
who in their communities like they would want to consult with or talk to or find um, so that they can see the whole story of what's happening with their kid that maybe is only presenting with ADHD and transness right now? Or like that's all that's been identified at this point. So easy questions is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm really good at those easy, easy ones. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not a parent. So it's hard for me to speak to a parent's needs. But what I can say from my perspective as somebody who works with adults and kids um, is try to learn as much about and listen to the stories of other people with similar situations as you can, right? It, it's here we are back. This is not a commercial for TikTok, y'all. I know. <laughs> here we are back at TikTok is a really useful tool for just hearing a whole bunch of people's stories and perspectives. Um, I would I would recommend if you have if you're a parent who has kids who are trans and neurodivergent in any way, um, particularly if they also have some of these other health issues like digestive system, skin, uh, balance, joint pain, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of conversation happening on TikTok. I would suggest going and watching a bunch, following a bunch, asking some questions and otherwise just listen. Right. If it's a if it's appropriate for you to share your perspective, you'll know. But probably it's not that useful unless you have something really telling to share. But listening is, I think, the most powerful thing right now, um, especially with these new and emergent constellations that we're talking about between neurodiversity, queerness, and transness. The important thing is just to assume a, a stance of curious ignorance. If I could gift curious ignorance to so many, to, to every parent I work with, I would. It's, and it's it's hard. It's hard for me to, like, I when you put doctor in front of your name, sometimes you start to think that you know things. That's oh, been really wrestling with this lately. <laughs> like, okay, down ego, down ego. <laughs> I know so many things now. What I'm trying to do in my own personal practice for myself, not my professional practice, like the practice of being Sam, is like, know things less, get more curious again, let yourself be ignorant, let yourself be wrong. Um, Know that it's okay to make mistakes. Know that you can clean up those mistakes. Be good at apologizing. Like, it's that. It's that. And I think that's the same thing for, for parents. Like, we have this idea, I think, culturally, as parents, that we have to be the authorities with answers, just like what you were saying about, about whiteness culturally. Um, there's a similar kind of thing. And this may actually just be, as a person who grew up in, at least, at least partially in white culture, uh, uh, this may just actually be a whiteness thing. Um, but what I do know is that, like, there is a a cultural narrative about parenting and being the authority who's correct and has the answers and the final word. And like, maybe, maybe look at that, and instead just be full of questions about your kids and like let your kids be the experts on what they're experiencing, and then go learn from other people with similar experiences and from a place of curiosity, offer, hey, have you thought about this? Have you looked at this? I just learned about this. Does this pertain to your experience? And you're spot on about TikTok, right? There's one of the coolest things about TikTok is that there is dialogue. It's conversations, really via video oftentimes, right? But like, there's an exchange of information and ideas that's happening. There really are within TikTok, like these different little communities or big communities really um and i i refer parents to tiktok all the time i think they they must think i'm insane but i think that the thing about it is that you said let kids be the expert on who they are and i want to just add one piece to that and that is and believe them when they tell you their truth right like instead of saying well that's not what i experienced so 
that can't be what you're experiencing or you're just like filtering that wrong, right? Like that's their truth. Believe them when they tell them to believe it. Even if they are misinterpreting, projecting or filtering it wrong, you're not going to convince them of that by telling them so. Especially if you're their parent. That's true. Of, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true of, of parents and kids. That's true in partnerships. That's true in every relationship that I've encountered so far. Um, and I know that through a lot of oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Sam, this has been the f- one of the funnest conversations I've had in a really long time. And I hope that you would be willing to like have more of these Definitely. conversations with me. Definitely, Mackenzie. Absolutely. Anytime. Drop a line. I'm here. I'm super excited. This is a, a fun friendship and it all birthed out of TikTok. Who knew? What a wild thing. Um, I look forward to to more. I look forward to more collaboration with you and like just discovering new tools and new frameworks to help people understand themselves, understand their relationship to their bodies and their body's relationship to the world and how to like just live easier. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Sam Zoranovich. It's clear that trans individuals face unique health challenges, and we're grateful to professionals like Sam who are dedicated to providing compassionate care to the LGBTQ community. As parents and allies, it's important that we continue to educate ourselves and advocate for loved ones' health and well-being. For more information or links to the TikToks that started it all, you can check out the show notes. I haven't really said a whole lot about how trans health is under attack, but it is. So it's more important than ever to support clinicians like Sam and to recognize that healthcare should be a right and it should be something that's discussed between you and your doctor. And politicians really should just stay out of it. If you have any questions or comments, please go ahead and reach out to me. Um, we're on Facebook as Wild Heart Society. Uh, we have a private Facebook group. That's the Camp Wild Heart community. Um, we're on Instagram as at wild.heart.society. Um, you can email at camp at wildheartsociety.org. I will answer it personally. Also, if you're looking for someone to work with your family, Wild Heart Society offers a wide range of services from individual and group therapy to community events and family transition coaching. We would love to hear from you and continue this conversation. All of us here at Camp Wildheart, listeners, counselors, guests, we're all here to support you, so don't be a stranger. Thanks for showing up here and for your kids. And thanks to Dr. Z slash Sam for sharing their time, skills, and energy with us. I loved talking to Sam so much, and it feels pretty likely that I'll have them on again sometime. Be sure to subscribe for free to the podcast so you don't miss future campfires. And leave us a rating. Rating the podcast helps other people find us, and we want to make sure that everyone who needs one knows that there's a bunk for them at Camp Wildheart. Heart.